Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christiani.org. Today is Friday, August 8th, 2014, and this is Christiani Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight, as I, um, as I begin this program, and we're having ongoing issues with TalkShoe, tonight as I begin this program, the um, shills from the insane clown posse, the Jewish quarter of Christian identity, are over on another TalkShoe channel, if I have to call it that. And they are um, in, in demonstrating that I somehow have Jewish blood. To me, that's, um, well, well, that would be news. They are utilizing names from my grandmother's past in order to claim that I have Jewish blood. My grandmother married Joseph Ashworth in 1935. He was an Englishman. He was a Protestant. My mother was born in 1938. Joseph Ashworth soon thereafter passed away. My grandmother's second husband was a Lithuanian Catholic named Stanley Batakata. He was tall and fair. He adopted my mother and put her through Catholic school, which is part of the reason why I was raised Catholic coming from ancestors of Protestant background. My grandmother's third husband was an Italian. His name was Eugene Vassile, V-A-S-I-L-E. He was a decent man. He took good care of my grandmother. He took good, good care of us as kids. I don't have any complaints about him. He was not my blood grandfather. Neither was Stanley Batacala. I have pictures right now and links showing that my mother was um, inquiring about her father, Joseph Ashworth, on Ancestry.com four years ago, and I couldn't have doctored those links. I have that posted on a Christoginia forum right now. My enemies are trying to discredit me because they cannot discredit my biblical exegesis. A bastard shall not enter the congregation of Yahweh. No Canaanite will ever see the kingdom of heaven. No part Jew, no 1% Jew, no 0.0001% Jew will enter the kingdom of heaven, period. Broken cisterns, one drop, you're out. That's cruel. Well, that's the creation of God, and there's no getting around the word of God in reference to his creation and his law. You're a son or you're a bastard. What's the problem? That's what the scripture says. If I'm a bastard, so what? That doesn't change the truth. When are my enemies going to get it? When they attack me, they only prove that I'm right about them. 
Let's hope I do. So, I mean, some foolish, casual observer might fall for their treachery. And, well, that's a shame. But my enemies, they're on the wrong side of Scripture. Whether I go to the kingdom of heaven or not, I know one thing's for certain. Those bastards are all going to the lake of fire. That's just the way it is. That's the law of Yahweh, our God. Tonight we're going to commence, after a hiatus of several weeks, so that we could relocate to Panama City, Florida. And, and we're in temporary quarters now. It, it's comfortable. It, it's, it, it's fine. It, it's not permanent. I, I mean, I, I, I don't have an oven to bake lasagna in. As I was bantering about with somebody before the program, but we do we we do have a a cooktop and a grill and we can eat, so we're comfortable, but we're in temporary quarters and and hope to find a more permanent place in the near future. Tonight, after a several week hiatus, we're going to commence our presentation of the epistles of Paul. As we have described over the last four segments of this presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans, from Romans chapter 9, Paul has been discussing and contrasting three different groups. The Israelites of Judea, who remained under the law. The Edomites of Judea, whom Yahweh hates. And the Israelites of the nations, those of the ancient dispersions who were being reconciled to Yahweh through Christ. The first two groups were contrasted in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, where Paul stated that he had concern for his kinsmen according to the flesh and explained that not all of those in Israel were of Israel. I'm sorry for the feedback. I finally got into the talk shoe page. Paul went on after explaining that not all of those in Israel were of Israel, Paul went on to compare Jacob and Esau, illustrating for us that in Jacob were vessels of mercy, while in Esau were vessels of destruction. With this, we supported our interpretation of Paul's message with explanations from both the prophets and from history, which clearly demonstrate that the Edomites had moved into the ancient lands of Israel and were eventually converted to Judaism, which we can only call it Judaism, well over 100 years before Christ. Judaism is an appropriate name for it at that time, because with the remnant of Israelite to Jerusalem attempting to convert Canaanites and Edomites and forcibly converting them to their religion, 
they sure as hell weren't practicing Hebrewism or adhering to the laws of Yahweh anymore. So from then on, it certainly was Judaism. The third group was revealed in Paul's words from Romans 9, verses 24 through 26, where Paul cites prophecies from Hosea and Isaiah proving that the nations to whom he brought the gospel were the nations descended from those cast-off, lost sheep Israelites of the Old Testament. From Romans chapter 1, much of Paul's language in reference to the Romans demonstrates his confident persuasion that the Romans themselves were indeed a portion of these long-dispersed Israelites. Of these three groups, Paul only accounts two of them worthy of salvation. The Israelites of Judea and the Israelites of the dispersion among the nations. The Edomites are accounted as vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, and none of them could ever be worthy of salvation, as Paul explains in Romans 9.22. The message of the prophets concerning these Edomites, today's Jews, is the same as Paul's message, a promise of destruction. Malachi chapter 1, Obadiah verse 18, and elsewhere. Therefore, when we read the balance of Paul's epistle, we can never make the erroneous assumption that the Edomite Jews are among those being considered by Paul for conversion and salvation. They certainly are not. Paul clearly stated that he only had concern for his brethren in Judea, those who were Israelites according to the flesh. Among the modern-day Jews, there are none of these left, and there haven't been any left for at least 15 or 1,600 years. Paul's concern for his kinsmen, according to the flesh, was relevant to his own time, but it is no longer relevant today, because all modern-day Jews have long ago been intermarried with those ancient Edomite Jews as well as the other races wherever they have traveled. And therefore, all modern-day Jews are bastards. Even if my grandmother was ever married to one of them, you can't change the truth. Because there has been a lengthy hiatus since the last of these presentations, we shall briefly recapitulate the first 15 verses of this chapter, Romans chapter 11, and some of the remarks which we made when we presented these verses last month. 
We'll even add a couple of new remarks. From verse 1, Now I say, has Yahweh thrust away his people? Certainly not. Indeed, I also am an Israelite of the offspring of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Yahweh has not thrust away his people whom he knew beforehand. The assertion Paul makes here does not preclude the fact that the dispersed Israelites among the nations to whom Paul brings the gospel, the gospel of reconciliation, are also Yahweh's people, which Paul already explained in previous chapters of this epistle. Paul's reference to his own genealogy does not set him apart from those nations, but rather accentuates the need for one to be of Israel according to the flesh in order to have a share in the promises of God. Paul's assertion that Yahweh does not thrust away his people reflects Paul's belief that all of the people of Israel shall indeed attain salvation, as we, as we shall see later in this chapter. He goes on to say, from the middle of verse 2, Do you not know in Elijah what the writings say? How he petitions Yahweh concerning Israel, Yahweh, they have killed your prophets, and they have demolished your altars, and I alone was left remaining, and they seek after my life. So what did the response to him say? I have left to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to Baal. Now in this manner, even in the present time, there has been a remnant in accordance with the election of favor, but if in favor, no longer from rituals, since favor would be favor no longer. There was something which we did not elaborate upon when we first presented this passage. Note that here, Paul considers the scripture from what has been preserved to us as the first book of Kings. Paul considers that to be the writings of Elijah. Does it not say in Elijah? The reference to the 7,000 does not mean that there were only 7,000 Israelites left in Elijah's time. Rather, their numbers were indeed as the sand of the sea. The 7,000 represented the number of pious men left in Israel who had not engaged in paganism and for which Elijah need not have feared for his life. Yahweh is basically saying, don't worry, we have 7,000 men who will do my bidding, meaning Yahweh's bidding. Paul uses the reference as a model for his own time. Certainly, the numbers of Israel in dispersion remained as the sand of the sea but they were also pagans. 
False hope was that there remained such a remnant of pious men in Israel, his kinsmen according to the flesh, and that he might yet reach them, or that the gospel might yet reach them, and they would obey the gospel message. The proof of this interpretation lies in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the proof of the interpretation so far as the scope of the children of Israel who are pagans outside of Judea at this time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says in verse 18, Behold, Israel, down through the flesh, that may have been translated according to the flesh, are not those who are eating the sacrifices, partners of the altar. What then do I say? That which is sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Rather, that whatever the nations sacrifice, Israel according to the flesh, whatever the nation sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. Now I do not wish for you to be partners with demons. Paul here clearly states that the nations practicing paganism are Israel according to the flesh. A proper understanding of ancient history and the settlement of Europe reveals Paul's assertion to be true. And no, it wasn't Judeans in the first century who were sacrificing things to idols. Verse 7 what then? What Israel seeks after, this it did not attain to, but the chosen have succeeded, and the rest were hardened, just as it is written. Yahweh has given to them a spirit of slumber, eyes that see not, and ears that hear not, unto this very day. And David says, their dining table will be for a snare and for a hunting of beasts, and for a trap, and for a repayment to them, their eyes will be darkened to not see, and their backs continually bow. Comparing Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9, Paul said in verse 11 that the purpose of Yahweh concerning the chosen endures. And for that reason, Esau was not included in the promises. Here in Romans 11, verse 8, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 29:10. By quoting this passage in reference to those who rejected Christ, Paul connects the coming punishment and destruction of Jerusalem, which he alludes to in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. He connects that to the rejection of the gospel. Paul only cares for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Yet in verse 8, he said, But the chosen have succeeded, and the rest were hardened. 
Paul understands predestination. Throughout these chapters, comparing Jacob and Esau, Paul has been informing us that Jacob was to receive favor and mercy from Yahweh. But those who were hardened here were not necessarily all Edomites and had rather included men whom Yahweh had predestined for such punishment for one reason or another. Other biblical prophecies explain that there were indeed such men, men of Israel, who were predestined for such a punishment. And we shall discuss these at length when we encounter the broken branches of verse 17. However, as we have discussed concerning ancient Israel, there were false prophets and a Canaanite population in Jerusalem there was one in ancient Israel. There was one in the Israel of Paul. The Ariel of Isaiah is Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 29. That prophecy quoted by Paul here focuses on the prophets, rulers, and seers. Likewise, in Romans chapter 10, where Paul quoted Isaiah chapter 28 in reference to the stone set in Zion. That prophecy was addressed to the hirelings of Ephraim, an epithet often used of the watchmen or the priests, and to ye afflicted men and ye princes or rulers of this people that is in Jerusalem. Isaiah 28:14. Paul also quoted here from Psalm 69 verses 22 and 23. In this psalm, David makes an imprecatory prayer against his enemies. But Psalm 69 is also a messianic prophecy of Christ and the enemies of Christ. And therefore, we can readily see parallels with the events of the crucifixion as they are recorded in the Gospel. When we see the context of Psalm 69 and compare it to the way in which Paul quotes from it, it is a messianic prophecy referring to those enemies of Yahweh God who partook in the crucifixion of Christ. Their dining table will be for a snare. Their keeping of the law reveals their hypocrisy and will not benefit them. They will be for a hunting of beasts. We will explain this at length later. As it is written in Luke chapter 21, Christ said, concerning the people of Jerusalem that rejected him, that there would be wrath upon them, and that they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. Verse 11. Now I say, did they stumble in order that they would fall? Certainly not. All Israel will be saved, right? But in their fall is preservation to the nations for the provocation of them to jealousy. But if their fall is the wealth of the society and their defeat, the wealth of the nations, how much more their fullness 
And here Paul continues to allude to allude to Isaiah chapter 28. If one does not understand Isaiah, one can never truly understand Paul. His entire Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 11, this entire discourse is parallel. Isaiah chapters 28 and 29. Here Paul is not talking about fullness for the Edomites. The Edomites were destined to stumble at the stone because they were never supposed to accept Christ. As Christ told them, you are not my sheep. You do not believe me because you are not my sheep. They were destined to stumble. Rather, Paul is talking about those of his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh, who had not yet accepted Christ, and therefore also stumbled at the stone. In their fall is the preservation of the nations. Many of the Israelite Judeans went along with the Edomite plans to destroy Christ. And in the death of Christ, the nations of scattered Israel have reconciliation to God after the manner in which Paul had already explained in Romans chapters 5 through 7. But in turn, as the gospel goes out to the nations of long ago scattered Israel, the Israelites of Judea, who maintained the law and the prophets, were provoked to jealousy. When we first presented these verses, we employed Acts chapter 22, verses 21 and 22, which we will also quote later tonight, as a signal example of this phenomenon, where we saw with certainty that the Judeans were provoked to jealousy upon the thought of Paul sharing his message of redemption with the nations. Regardless of the origin of those nations, and regardless of whether those Judeans themselves had accepted Christ, and most of them had not. Of course, Paul's discourses concerning the Israelites of Judea in both Acts and here in Romans, are historically relevant to his own time. But these discourses are no longer relevant to our time. Christ himself said of Jerusalem that it would no longer bear fruit. And those Israelite Judeans who continued to reject Christ were separated from their brethren in Christ and ultimately mixed in with the Canaanites and Edomites who never accepted Christ. They were given over to the bad figs. These are the broken off branches described later in this chapter of this epistle. Verse 13. Indeed, I speak to you, the nations, because I am an ambassador of the nations. I honor my office. 
if possibly I would provoke to jealousy my kinsmen. Now, literally, the word is my flesh. And preserve some from among them. Indeed, if the disposal of them is the reconciliation of the society, what would the acceptance be if not life from among the dead? In other words, they too, accepting Christ, had life with him. Of course, ultimately, all Israel would be saved. Life from among the dead may indeed be allegorical here. The dead being all of those Edomites in Judea who were by this time in full control of the nation. If Paul could save some of his kinsmen, preserve them from among those Edomites, call them out to come to Christ, then they would be granted life from among the dead. Paul clearly imagined that being provoked to jealousy upon seeing the gospel of Christ go out to the nations, which were indeed the children of scattered Israel, that by that he would also turn his Israelite kinsmen among the Judeans to Christ. Paul is a kinsman to all, all of Israel, but here he expresses his desire for his kinsmen in Israel because not all of those in Judea are his kinsmen, as he explained in Romans chapter 9. And doing so, he is emphasizing the racial scope of the gospel. If the Israelites of Judea had not acceded to the desires of the Edomite Sadducees, from which came the party of the high priests, as well as others of the party of the Pharisees who desired to put Christ to death, then there would be no reconciliation to God for the Israelites scattered abroad, since Christ would not have been the Lamb of God, and there would have been no release from the law in the manner which Paul described in Romans chapter 7. The Edomites only had their way because many of the Israelites went along with them. Therefore, Peter, addressing the people of Judea, And speaking of Christ, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, exclaimed that he, meaning Christ, by the appointed will and foreknowledge of Yahweh, was surrendered, who crucifying through lawless hands you have slain. And Peter was addressing a body of Judeans on the Pentecost. Here, Paul also defines the scope of the word cosmos, or world, as the Adamic world of scattered Israel and the Adamic Genesis 10 nation, since he himself has confined the message of the gospel to the nations which sprung from the loins of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. 
those nations who are of the Roman oikumene, who were both Judean and Greek, Scythian and barbarian, slave and free. Now that we have recapitulated what we believe to be the important points of discussion concerning the first 15 verses of this chapter, we shall proceed with the balance of Romans chapter 11. Verse 16. Now if the first fruit is sacred, then also the balance, and if the root is sacred, also the branches. The word rendered balance in this passage is literally lump. And it may be a reference to the mass of dough made from the grain, from which the first fruits were already sanctified. Since a good tree does not produce bad fruit, all of Israel, which is every single Israelite, must be worthy of salvation. From Matthew chapter 7, the words of Christ, even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Yahshua Christ himself, being the root of the Adamic tree, the children of Israel and the entire Adamic race is indeed sacred. But of some of the branches, verse 17, but if some of the branches have been broken off and you, being of a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and having become a partaker of the richness of the root of the olive tree, you must not exult over the branches. But if you exult, you will not sustain the root, or the root you. There are some differences among the manuscripts here, which will be in the notes. This comparison made by Paul to me, it's reminiscent of a passage from Homer's Odyssey, Book 5, in which Odysseus encounters a place where two olive trees, one cultivated and one wild, grew out of the same spot. Verse 19. Now you will say, those branches have been broken off in order that I would be grafted in. And once again, none of the major versions, nor the Nestle A-Land texts, read this verse as a question. I must let the context stand for itself. Grammatically, the combination of a future indicative, a verb of the indicative mood, I'm sorry, and the interrogative, the, the particle un, which is also often interrogatory, are indeed, that grammatical pattern is indeed used for interrogatory statements by Paul, for questions by Paul. 
Examples are at Romans 3.31, Romans 7.13. Verse 20, correct, or well, or good. In disbelief, they were broken off, and you in faith stand. Be not proud, but reverent. Indeed, if Yahweh spared not the natural branches, perhaps you may not be spared. The cutting off of certain people of Judah was a matter of prophecy. This is found in Jeremiah chapter 24, in the parable of the good and the bad figs. I'm going to read that chapter from verse 1. It's short. Yahweh showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of Yahweh. After that, in the book of Drezar, king of Babylon had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then said Yahweh unto me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil, that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Again, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans, for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up, and I will give them a heart to know me, that I am Yahweh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Surely, thus saith Yahweh, so will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be, re, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall be. The famine and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. The Judahites, who were obedient to Yahweh and went into captivity, were to be acknowledged as good figs, allegorically, of course. Yet certain Judahites were to be given over to the bad figs. It is not that they themselves were bad figs, but that they would be given over to bad figs. These were Zedekiah, the king of Judah, 
and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land after the Babylonian deportation, right? And them that dwell in the land of Egypt. Yet this could not have been fulfilled until after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and some of the subsequent Judean revolts against Rome, since it was not until then that the Judeans began to be taken captive into all nations and to become a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where they were driven. In the time of tragedy, certain the, the Roman Emperor Trajan Trajan circa one hundred fifteen AD there were Judean revolts against Rome in Cyprus, in Cyrene, and in Alexandria, which were put down by the Romans and which decimated Judeans by this time we could call them Jews, right? In those areas. Only then were Jeremiah's words fulfilled concerning them that dwell in the land of Egypt. Later, in the time of Hadrian, circa 135 AD, there was the Bar Kokhba rebellion in Judea. During these three Judean wars, the one which resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem, the one in the time of Trajan, the one in the time of Hadrian. During these three Judean wars against the Romans, several million Judeans died, and nearly all of the cities they inhabited were laid to waste. Perhaps hundreds of thousands were sold into slavery, and they were distributed throughout the Greco-Roman world in fulfillment of the prophecy. Verification that these things from Jeremiah chapter 24 were not fulfilled until the Christian period is found not only in history, but also in the very similar words of Christ from Luke chapter 21. And when you shall see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh or is near. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto, for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there, shall, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they shall be, fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. A somewhat shorter version, but saying the same thing as the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 24 concerning the people of Judah who were going to be handed over 
to the bad figs. They would suffer the same fate with the enemies of Christ. The fulfillment of these words began with the Judean revolt of 65 to 70 AD, resulting in the destruction of Jerusalem. These are the branches that were being broken off, Israelites, who, as a punishment from Yahweh, were blinded by him for that reason, and either slain or mingled in with the bad fakes. They were given over to them. A similar prophecy is seen of certain, certain false prophets. In Jeremiah chapter 11, where Jeremiah himself seems to be a type for Christ, meaning that this is a dual prophecy, one concerning Jeremiah and the second being a messianic prophecy. I will read from Jeremiah 11:16. Yahweh called thy name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire upon it, speaking of Judah and Jerusalem, and the branches of it are broken. For Yahweh of hosts that planted thee has pronounced evil against thee, for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense unto Baal. And Yahweh has given me knowledge of it, and I know it. Then thou showedest me their doings. But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter. And I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. But, O oh, Yahweh of hosts, that judges righteously, that tries the reins in the heart, let me see thy vengeance on them, for unto thee have I revealed my cause. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, of the men of Anatoth that seek thy life, saying, Prophecy not in the name of Yahweh, that thou die not by our hand. Therefore thus saith Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And there shall be no remnant of them. For I will bring evil upon the men of Anatoth, even in the year of their visitation. From the opening verses of this prophecy, we see that Jeremiah himself was the son of a priest of Anatoth. And Anatoth was the place where Jeremiah was later told to buy a field. Perhaps this passage, the broken branches, was the inspiration for Paul's broken branches analogy here in Romans 11. However, the more important message is that for the Israelite denying Yahweh his God, his branch is broken off from Yahweh's olive tree, which is Israel. This is what 
the first century Judeans did when they denied the gospel of Christ. Verse 22. Behold then, the goodness and severity of Yahweh, certainly upon those who have fallen, severity, but the goodness of Yahweh upon you, if then you abide in that goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Moreover, they also, if they do not remain in disbelief, shall be grafted in. Indeed, Yahweh is able to graft them in anew. If you, from out of a naturally wild olive tree, had been cut off, and contrary to nature had been grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more can those natural ones be grafted into their own olive tree? The text of the Nestle land, Novum Testamentum Grece, does not mark verse 24 as a question, although the King James Version agrees with the reading here. That shows how arbitrary it is when considering whether or not passages are interrogatory, heavily dependent on the context. There are some definite interrogatory particles in Greek. Not all questions contain them. There are three words pertaining to olive trees here, which Paul uses. The first word is elahia. Elahia is simply an olive tree, or the word can even refer to the olive itself. The second word, agra, that's a prefix, right? Agra elahias. Elahias is the masculine form of elahia. Agra elahias refers to the wild or uncultivated olive. And the third word is cali elahias. Kali being another prefix and the same word, Elahias. Kali Elahias is the garden or the cultivated olive tree. In Latin, the olive is olea, and the wild olive is oleaster. It has a suffix. These olives are the same kind the same species. The distinction is only one of cultivation. It's not a distinction of species or race. There is another word for the wild olive, cottonous. Paul did not use that word here. We can estimate that his use of words based upon the root Elahia was purposeful, demonstrating an intrinsic connection between the wild and the cultivated olives which he describes. Paul had told the Romans in Romans chapter 2 that as many as have done wrong without law 
Without law, then they are cleansed. And as many as have done wrong in the law, by the law, they will be judged. Yet Paul also indicated many times that the Romans were indeed of the dispersions of the ancient Israelites. And in that same chapter, he told them, for when the nations which do not have the law by nature practice the things of the law, these not having law themselves are a law who exhibit the work of the law written in their hearts. Referencing a prophecy in Jeremiah, chapter 31, concerning the children of Israel, that Yahweh would write his law on their hearts. The Romans may have been wild olives, but they nevertheless grew into a society based on the rule of law with the stature of an olive tree. In contrast to his message to the Romans, Paul told the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were Dorian Greeks, they were not Romans, Paul told them that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all had passed through the sea, and all up to Moses had been immersed had immersed themselves in the cloud and in the sea, and all had eaten of the same spiritual food, and all drank of the same spiritual drink. For they drank of an attending spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. So the ancestors of the Corinthians were in the exodus with the Israelites. Likewise, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul told the Galatians, Now I say, for as long, for as long a time as the heir is an infant, he differs not at all from a bondman, being master of all, but he is subject to guardians and stewards until a time appointed by the Father. Just as we also, when we were infants, we were held subject under the elements of the society. And when the fulfillment of the time had come, Yahweh had dispatched his son, having been born of a woman, having been subject to law, in order that he would redeem those subject to law, and that we would recover the position of sons. And because you are sons, Yahweh has dispatched the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Father, Father. So you, meaning the Galatians, are no longer a bondman, meaning the Galatians were under the law, but a son. Ostensibly, the Dorian Greeks were Israelites who migrated out of Palestine during the later part of the Judges period, perhaps as early as the beginning of the 12th century B.C. While they departed from Israel and went off into paganism, 
before the beginning of the kingdom period. The laws of Yahweh and Hebrew traditions practiced by their ancestors for several hundred years were still a part of their culture and had an impact on their manner of life. These things had become ingrained to a certain extent into their customs. The Galatians were Galatahi. They were they were Israelites of the Assyrian deportations who had long also been pagans. Well, these Galatians in Anatolia had become Hellenized and had some Greeks among them. They still had many centuries of Yahweh's law in their heritage, at least in part. Even long after a people becomes disconnected from their original culture, aspects of that culture have a continued effect on their society and their morality. We can detect this in our own society today, which still upholds many of the values expressed in documents as old as the Magna Carta, and which still upholds many biblical values even though today a great number of people have departed from Christ. Paul never used the wild olive allegory in reference to the Corinthians or the Galatians or of anyone other than the Romans. There are many fools who take Paul's allegory and abuse it so that they may insist that branches of pears, peaches, apples, and plums can be grafted into the kingdom of Yahweh. A certain so-called pastor, a real clown, Stephen Jones, who pretends to be an identity Christian, once said this very thing in reference to his own acceptance of the other races. But Paul never said these things. The Romans were wild olives, but they were nevertheless olives. The Judeans who grew up with the law and the prophets represent the cultivated olive tree. And all of the branches of lost Israel were being reconciled to that tree in Christ. The only difference which may be determined is that the Romans were Israelites whose ancestors had departed from the main body of, of Israel before the olive tree was cultivated by the law and the prophets. And Paul was aware of that. The word of God applied to the Romans as heirs of the covenants. But as a people, they did not grow up with God's law, and therefore, they were wild olives. Speaking of the exodus, the exodus from Egypt, from a later Egyptian point of view, the Greek historian Theodorus Siculus quotes Hecatahius of Abdera, who was an earlier Greek historian of the 4th century BC, 
And he wrote that the aliens, a reference to the Hebrews, the aliens were driven from the country. And the most outstanding and active among them banded together and, as some say, were cast ashore in Greece and certain other regions. Their leaders were notable men, chief among them being Danos and Cadmus, both of whom traditionally went to Greece. But the greater number were driven into what is now called Judea. The colony was headed by a man called Moses. Outstanding, both for his wisdom and for his courage. So we see that the pagan Greeks respected Moses. Here the Greeks remembered Danos and Cadmus. More fully, they are referred to throughout the Greek poets and histories as Danos the Egyptian and Cadmus the Phoenician. However, in many other places, the Greeks remembered two other men quite frequently, just not here, Dardanus and Calchas as the legendary founders of Troy and Pamphylia. Here I will quote several passages from another paper at Christogenia, a paper I had written perhaps 10 years ago, would be, would be my guess, I'm guessing. Classical records of Trojan Roman Judah. And I wrote this. In our Bible, at 1 Kings 4.31, the wisdom of Solomon was said to exceed that of several other men. And I quote, For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, and Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all nations round about, Yet the only other place in the Bible that these apparently great men are found is at 1 Chronicles 2.6, where we learn that Ethan, Heman, Calcol, Darda, and Zimri were all sons of Zerah, the son of Judah. And I must interject now that Ethan and Haman are found as writers of some of our Psalms and wise men in the time of David. And they may be these same men, but Darda and Calcol are found nowhere else in Scripture. At Genesis 46.12, we learn that when Jacob went to Egypt, Zerah went along also, but no sons accompanied him. He Excuse me. He may have had a wife or wives with him, Genesis 46:26, and Pharez had his own two sons with him. Zerah went to Egypt without children. Much later, 
during the Exodus, we see that the descendants of Zerah were with the Israelites. So Zerah had children in Egypt. We see that in Numbers 26.20. But the records of the census in, in the desert mentioned the tribes of the sons of Perez, while Zerah's sons, who must have been notable men, are not mentioned individually. Is it merely a coincidence that these names of some of Zerah's sons, while appearing nowhere else in the Bible, do turn up in classical Greek records? These men with whom Solomon was compared must have been great. And so why shouldn't we, not finding them in the Hebrew records, why shouldn't we look to the records of the nations round about for the deeds of these men? As the scripture says, that Solomon's fame was in all the nations round about. Of course we should. Being told so many times that Abraham's offspring would become many nations. Where is the affirmation of the promise and the foundation of our Christian faith if we do not find it in history? In Greek literature, Darda, Dardanus, is the founder of the settlement in northwest Anatolia, which became known as Troy. Its principal city was known by two names, Ilios, or Ilium, as it's often called, after Ilos, one of his descendants, and Troy after Tros, another of his descendants. This is found in places such as Strabo's Geography, Book 13. Homer, the great poet, confidently gives a genealogy from Dardanus down through Ilos and Tros and several other generations unto Priam, the king of Troy, when the city was destroyed by the Greeks. The larger district around Troy became known as the Troad, and the Greeks claimed that the walls of the city were built by the sea god Poseidon. The tragic poets also said that after the Greeks had, been, had destroyed the city, that the walls of Troy could no longer be found. Throughout Homer and later Greek literature, the Trojans are called Dardans, or sometimes Dardanians, after Dardanus. But sometimes Homer mentions Trojans and Dardans together, distinguishing the Dardans of Troy from the Dardans who dwelt in other towns. We are told by Strabo, Book 10, where he cites the, the geographer, where, where, where the geographer cites Homer 
I'm sorry. We are told that the Lickians are Dardans. We are told that Dardans are also found among the Illyrians in Strabo Book 7, chapters 5, 6, and 7. From Homer's Iliad, Book 2, it is clear that Dardans dwelt in other towns throughout the Troad, the land around the city of Troy. Later on, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Paul is found preaching in both Lycia and in Illyria. Herodotus, book 7, and Strabo, who quotes him in book 14 of his geography, tells us that Pamphylia, the district on the southern coast of Anatolia, was a colony founded by Calchas, who was a Trojan. Calchas was also considered to be a wise man and a prophet by the Greeks. Therefore, he would be worthy of comparison to Solomon. If Dardanus is not Darda, and if Calchas is not Calcal, which is Calcad in the Septuagint at 1 Kings 431, but Calcal at 1 Chronicles 2.6. So you see how arbitrary some of these name endings are. If Darda is not Dardanus, and if Calcal is not Calchas, then why does the Bible mention these men as if they were men of renown, famous men who we should be able to find? Why does the Bible mention these men without telling us who they were? And where did Darda the Trojan come from? when he founded the colony which became Troy. And I must interject that the same legends in many other places, in Herodotus, in Strabo, in Diodorus, and in other writings, other early Greek writings, the same legends trace these men who came to Anatolia, what we know as modern-day Turkey, from the islands of the Mediterranean Sea, even by way of Crete. These men were not native to Greece or to Anatolia. By all historical accounts, the Romans were descendants of the Trojans. who escaped to Italy after the war with the Greeks. And the fall of Troy is generally dated by the Greeks approximate to the year which we would consider to be 1185 or perhaps 1184 B.C. The poet Homer gives a genealogy from Dardanus 
who was, according to the legend, the son of Zeus and Electra. Homer gives a genealogy from Dardanus down to the elderly Priam, who was the king of Troy at its fall, which includes a mere six generations. And the seventh generation to the great Trojan princes Hector, who died in the battle, and Aheneus, who is credited with founding the Trojan colony in Italy. Now, all of this may sound fantastic, and of course, it's Greek legend, so some of it certainly is fantastic. However, it demonstrates that the Greek beliefs concerning the founding of Troy and its later destruction, fit rather snugly into the time frame of the exodus from Egypt, since those seven generations can easily span the minimal requirement of 250 years. If the Romans are descendants of the ancient Israelites, as Paul asserts in diverse ways throughout his epistle, then the imperfect legends must indeed represent historical truths. The Romans were Israelites, but they grew up in the wild. And therefore, Paul calls them wild olives, as opposed to the other branches of Israel, which had once had the law and the prophets, like the Galatians, and therefore would have been cultivated olives. They would not have been wild olives. And Paul told the Galatians that the law was their schoolmaster, to bring them to Christ. Paul's allegory does not apply to Gentiles or to any non-Israelite people, Adamic or otherwise. In Christ, those wild olive Israelites of which the Romans were a part would be grafted back into the cultivated olive tree representing the family of Yahweh. But the, the allegory cannot be abused to include anybody else. To repeat verse 24, if you, from out of a naturally wild olive tree, have been cut off, and contrary to nature, had been grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more can those natural ones be grafted into their own olive tree? And with all certainty, Judean Israelites who turned to Christ would indeed have once again become a part of the family of Yahweh, had taken their position in the family of Yahweh. But by this, Paul does not mean the Edomite Jews, 
Paul is only writing these things in reference to his flesh. As he says in this chapter, translated as my kinsman in the Christian New Testament. He's only saying these things in reference to his kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites, as he says in Romans chapter 9. And the Edomites are bastards who are not of his flesh. As Paul explained in Hebrews chapter 12, there is a clear distinction between sons and bastards, and no bastard can be a son, which is why Esau, who was a fornicator, a race mixer, could find no room for repentance. That was also mentioned by Paul in that same chapter of Hebrews. Esau's fornication was related to the distinction between sons and bastards in Hebrews chapter 12. Sons are included and bastards are excluded. And that is the teaching of Scripture. Verse 25. For I do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, of this mystery, lest you be wise on account of yourselves, that hardness in part has come upon Israel until the fullness of the nations arrives. This word rendered literally as hardness, the word porosis, may just as well have been metaphorically rendered as stubbornness or even as blindness, which is how the King James Version treats it both here and where it appears in Ephesians 4.18. Paul is not saying that a part of the people of Israel would be blind as a minority of the mainstream translations assert. They twist the language to make this assertion as if they expect the conversion of the Edomite Jews to Christ. Yet these Edomite Jews, the Jews of today, are actually vessels of destruction, not fit for conversion. They only await the fulfillment of the several prophecies promising their final destruction. Rather, Paul is saying that Israel suffers blindness to a degree. And by that, he means Israel in general, and not only Judean Israelites. All of Israel would remain blind to some degree until the fullness of the nations arrives, which is at the time predetermined by Yahweh. We don't know it. This time must correspond to that of the words of Christ concerning his enemies, found in Luke 21:24, where he says that Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, meaning nations or perhaps heathens, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Concerning the Israelites of Judea, who had not accepted Christ, Paul had 
already said in verse 7 of this chapter, quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, that Yahweh has given to them a spirit of slumber, eyes that see not and ears that hear not, unto this very day. However, Paul's mission was to the nations of this first Israel and not to the Israelites of Judea, although he was naturally concerned for them. In the book of Acts, in chapter 26, Paul described in part the purpose of his commission, where he recollects his exchange with Yahshua on the road to Damascus. And I will read from verse 5. And I said, Who are you, Master? And the prince said, I am Yahshua, whom you persecute. But you must arise and stand upon your feet. For this I have appeared to you, for you to be a chosen assistant and witness both of the things you have seen by me and of the things I shall reveal to you. Taking you out from among the people, and from the nations to whom I send you to open their eyes, for which to turn them from darkness to light, and from the authority of the adversary, or Satan, to God, for them to receive a remission of errors and a portion with those being sanctified by the faith which is in me. Yahshua Christ himself proclaimed the purpose of the gospel as he quoted from Isaiah chapter 61 where he, re, he is reported as having said in Luke chapter 4 the spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the restoration of sight to the blind, to send off the broken with release, to proclaim a year acceptable by Yahweh. But even if the gospel was to open the eyes of the blind, as the gospel itself attests, Israel is still blind in part, since not yet has Israel been fully delivered from the power of the adversary, or Satan. Therefore, speaking of the ultimate perfection of the creation of Yahweh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'll quote from verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy, In part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly. But then, face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abide, and now abide is faith, hope, charity, these three, 
But the greatest of these is charity. We see to a glass darkly. From Isaiah chapter 42, it is also evident that the children of Israel will not see the truth with clarity until the time of their ultimate restoration. And I'll quote from verse 18. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but thou observest not. Opening the ears, but he heareth not. Yahweh is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes, rabbit holes. And they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey and none delivers. For a spoil and none saith, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Did not Yahweh? He against whom we have sinned. For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient to his law. Therefore he has poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it has set him on fire round about. Yet he knew it not, and it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. The light of the gospel was to reveal the identity of the people of Yahweh by bringing them into obedience to him. That's what Israel is offered in the gospel. This is explained in Luke 2.32 and elsewhere. Without obedience, the people of Yahweh are blinded, allegorically blinded, as the ancient Israelites were blinded for their disobedience. Blindness is the consequence of disobedience prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where it says, Yahweh shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart, and thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. Those who rejected Christ were blinded by Yahweh for his purposes, as Paul cited from Isaiah chapter 29, earlier in this chapter of Romans. So long as they continued to reject Christ, they remained blind. Those of the nations of scattered Israel sat in darkness, and if they accepted Christ, they would be granted a recovery of sight, provided they submitted themselves to his law. But even then, as Paul explained to the Corinthians, Christians could only hope to see through a glass darkly until the time of their full restoration. Therefore, even those of them who do see cannot possibly see everything. Verse 26. And in that manner, all of Israel shall be delivered, just as it is written. 
from out of Zion shall come the deliverer, and he shall turn away in piety from Jacob. And this to them is the covenant from me, when I should remove their guilt or their sin. Here in verses 26 and 27, Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 20 and 21. This is an important passage, which is also related to what Paul has written here about both the blindness of Israel and the salvation of Israel. And therefore, we shall read a significant portion of the chapter. Behold, Isaiah 59, verse 1. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. And on to verse 10, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far off from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against Yahweh, and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, and judgment is turned away backward. And justice stands afar off, for the truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. This is spiritual blindness. Yeah, truth fails, and he that departs from evil makes himself a prey, and Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. No man can save us. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of, of vengeance for clothing. This is Revelation chapter 19 and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands he will pay recompense. So shall they fear the name of Yahweh from the west, 
and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of Yahweh shall lift up a standard against him. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion. And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith Yahweh. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith Yahweh. My spirit that is upon thee and my words, which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith Yahweh, henceforth and forever. In his last 25 chapters, the prophet is addressing the children of Israel in the isles or coastlands, in the places to which they were being scattered as Isaiah wrote. Yet only now, in this present time, has the enemy come in like a flood among the nations of Israel found in Christendom. As many other prophecies also describe, therefore this is also a messianic prophecy of the second advent of Christ. It is clear from the context that Israel, still in a state of sin, is still blind and is saved in spite of themselves and not on account of themselves. When discussing chapter 5 of this epistle to the Romans, we exhibited this same thing, that Israel is only preserved in spite of themselves, from the prophecy found in Hosea chapter 13. Verse 28, certainly concerning the good message, Paul's still talking about Israelites in Judea, concerning the good message, they are on your account enemies, but concerning the chosen, beloved on account of the fathers. As the Apostle John said in his second epistle, each who going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not Yahweh. He abiding in the teaching, he also has the Father and the Son. If one comes to you and does not bear this teaching, you do not receive him into the house, and you do not speak to welcome him, for he speaking to welcome him takes a share in his evil works. Christians are to treat all of those who reject the gospel of Christ as enemies. This admonition has never been lifted, and in spite of the relatively recent apostasy, it still stands. However, it must be kept in mind that the purpose of the gospel is the salvation and reconciliation of all Israel. Therefore, 
it is something which is not for those who are not Israel. Where Paul says, concerning the chosen, he refers once again to his kinsmen according to the flesh. As he explained at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, we must strike a balance and regard our own kinsmen according to the flesh, those who are Israelites, as brothers in Christ, whether or not they have accepted the gospel. However, we should not have communion with them until they do accept the gospel. Rejecting Christ, they must therefore be treated as our enemies, even though they are beloved on account of the fathers. They will be saved in spite of themselves, as we just illustrated from Isaiah chapter 59. Verse 29. Indeed, the favor and calling of Yahweh are not to be repented of. The promises made to the Israelite patriarchs were made without exception, and therefore all of Israel shall indeed be saved. These promises have not been changed or withdrawn or altered. In fact, the word of Yahweh says at Malachi 3.6, For I am Yahweh, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Here, Paul once again elucidates for us the fact that the favor and calling of God are according to what was promised in the Old Testament. From out of Zion shall come the Deliverer, and he shall turn away in piety from Jacob. All of these promises are exclusive to the children of Israel, both those of the remnant in Judea and those of the ancient dispersion. Verse 30, even as you were at one time disobedient to Yahweh, to be disobedient to a God, you have had to have at one time known that God. You, your ancestors, the Romans, even though they weren't under the law, they still, their ancestors still knew that God in Egypt and before time. Even as you were at one time disobedient to Yahweh, but are now shown mercy due to their disobedience, because they allowed that crucifixion of the Christ, that apostasy. In that manner, these also are now in opposition to your mercy, so that they may have mercy shown to them. As we have illustrated from Acts chapter 22, the remnant of Judea were indeed in opposition to the mercy of Yahweh upon the nations of scattered Israel. In the account where, upon Paul's arrest, he gave a defense before the people of Jerusalem, explaining his encounter with the risen Christ 
on the road to Damascus, he concluded from verse 19. And I said, Prince, they know that I was imprisoning and slaying those believing in you throughout the assembly halls. And when they spilled the blood of Stephen, your witness, even I myself was standing by and consenting and keeping the garments of those slaying him. And he said to me, go, because I shall send you off to distant nations. Then at this point, Luke makes a point by explaining in verse 22, now they listened until this word and raised their voice saying, take such as him from the earth, for it is not fit that he lives. Since this epistle to the Romans was written before Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, Paul understood this opposition to the spread of the gospel among the nations even before the events of Acts chapter 22 had occurred. Romans 11.32 Therefore Yahweh has enclosed all in disobedience that he may show mercy to all. In the end, no man may boast that he attained salvation of his own accord. Yet, in Isaiah 45, 25, the word of Yahweh says that in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified, all the seed of Israel, every individual Israelite shall be justified and shall glory. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul explains this idea expressed here in Romans 11.32 at greater length. And I quote from verse 4. But Yahweh, being rich in compassion, because of that great love of his with which he has loved us, and we, being dead in transgressions, are made alive with the anointed, and Paul makes a parenthetical statement, in favor you are being preserved, and are raised together and are seated together in the heavenly places with Christ Yahshua, in order that he would exhibit in the coming ages the surpassing riches of his favor in kindness to us among the number of Christ Yahshua. For in favor you are being preserved through faith, and this, Yahweh's gift, is not of yourselves, not from works, lest anyone would boast. For his work we are, having been established among the number of Christ Yahshua for good works, which Yahweh before prepared in order that we would walk in them. Without this hope, our Christian faith is vanity. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of both wisdom and knowledge of Yahweh. How unsearchable his judgments and incomprehensible his ways. Remember that response the next time somebody says, will all of Israel be saved? What about this guy? What about that guy? What about him? What about her? Oh, he's a real bastard. He don't deserve it. 
remember this, is Paul's response. How unsearchable his judgments and incomprehensible his ways. For who has known the mind of Yahweh? Or who has become his counselor? In verse 34, Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of Yahweh, or being his counselor, has taught him? This similar rhetoric in Jeremiah 23:18. For who has stood in the counsel of Yahweh and has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? They all express the same ideas. We cannot question God. Verse 35. Or who has betrayed him? Then they will be requited by him. Or requited by him. Given compensation by him. The text of Nestlier Land and the popular translations extend the question here to include the entire verse reading and for them, which is not improper. However, the word rendered as betrayed here in the Christogenia New Testament is often first given, as it is in the King James Version, which reads, or who has first given to him, then they will be requited by him. This word, prodidomi, Strong's 4272, means to give beforehand, to pay in advance. But it also means to give up to the enemy, to deliver up, to betray. It has a variety of other uses depending upon the context in which it appears. It could mean to forsake in distress, or to give up as lost, or even simply to fail. In a positive Christian context, we may perceive, as the King James has it, we may perceive one doing the work of the kingdom of Yahweh as one who has first given to Yahweh in anticipation of a heavenly reward. However, from the verse which precedes, from the text of verse 34, we have read this passage in a negative context, and therefore, we have translated the word in its appropriate tense as betrayed. In either case, one reaps what one sows. Verse 36, because from him and through him and for him are all things, to him is Honor for the ages, truly. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, from verse 17. Therefore, if one is among the number of Christ, a new creation, the old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. But all things from Yahweh, not all things are from Yahweh, 
but all things from Yahweh, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and is giving the service of reconciliation to us. The Christian must discern that while all things which matter are from Yahweh, here there are things among us which are not from Yahweh. Even the Apostle John, in his fourth chapter of his first epistle, tells us that not all spirits are from Yahweh. Speaking of people. Therefore, Paul opens the next chapter of this epistle to the Romans with an admonition that includes the warning that they, as he tells them, not conform yourselves to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind towards approval by you to do that which is the good and acceptable and perfect will of Yahweh. By this, Christians conform themselves to God, and they must be careful not to imagine that they may conform God to themselves. All things are through, by, and for him, but all things from Yahweh, all things from God. The sins of man cannot be placed upon the shoulders of God, except that he forgives us for them. But he did not create our bastards. I will be here tomorrow night with Martin Luther, part 11, on the Jews and their lives. Next week, Romans chapter 12, Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.